Mintenburn, the academic analysis of blockchain and other technologies in the decentralized digital economy. I'm your host, Kelsey Navin, and we are tuning in from the RMIT University Blockchain Innovation Hub to bring you expert guests and test frontier ideas. Today, we're joined by Professor Sinclair Davidson and distinguished Professor Jason Potts to discuss intellectual property rights in cyberspace. Welcome to both of you. Hello. Thanks, Kelsey. So we may need to start with a bit of a, a shared foundation for the listeners and for ourselves, um, especially because we're talking about something which is traditionally conceived of in a legal sense, but I'm obviously speaking with um, a handful of economists here. So what are intellectual property rights from an economics perspective? Yeah, so I'll, I'll take this one, Kelsey. So I think um, it's, it's interesting that economists have just as much interest in intellectual property, which is traditionally a legal domain because it's a contract that's made and people seek, seek lawyers to help them with establishing the contracts and claims of ownership over it. But economists have been um, interested in all sorts of you know, property rights, um, you know, um, you know, for forever. And the idea of intellectual property rights is a sort of subclass of things of how do you create a property right, which means an ability to create an asset, a claim over an asset, a tradable asset, um, all of the features of, of, a, of, a, of, a, of, of something that can be exchanged um, in a marketplace, when that thing isn't actually a thing. And when that thing is information or an idea, um, we have to create a new type of property um, intellectual property in order to do that. And the history of you know, intellectual property rights goes way, way back. It's, it's older than capitalism. Um, it goes back to sort of medieval times um, with the two main sorts of property, of intellectual property. We have copyright, um, which goes back to, and correct me if I'm wrong on this thing, 1773 with the Statute of Anne, I believe. Yeah. Or, or thereabouts, some sort of number beginning with 17. Um, and, and patents. And patents go much further back. Um, patents, uh, the statute of monopolies in English common law, which is 16 something or other. But um, I think most economic historians and legal historians will trace it back to the Venetian sort of 14th century or, or, or before, where patents were basically monopoly charters granted by the Doge, the, the you know the. the of, 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 the, of, of Venice or whatever it was to establish a particular claim um, that was able to uh, over over a right to do something that usually a right associated with ideas. So just the key point there is, is that the idea of intellectual property rights um, over various things, patents, which are you know, um, over, over novel ideas, copyright, which is usually over written text or performances or, or, or sort of, 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 of ideas that are intangible, um, is uh, something that that predates capitalism and that, that there have been institutions have been created to create these rights, these tradable rights that are attached to a person that have economic value, um, that make it safe to conduct trade, to make investments in, in these sorts of things. So um, it's just recognizing that, you know, property isn't an obvious natural concept that just falls from heaven or you find you know around you um, it, it is it is a it is an artificial institutional construct that is created it is historically contextual um, it evolves and changes through time and what we mean by intellectual property is sort of a wrapper over all of those things it actually covers not just patents um, over ideas and and copyright over over content but it's also trademarks trade secrets branding um, a, a broad sort of gamut of, of of intangible intellectual ideas that are wrapped up 
in such a way that they become commodities, that they become tradable objects. So this is one of the very few areas where Jason and I don't actually almost totally agree on anything um, because uh, Jason's telling you a story about um, rights and lawyers and governments and all this sort of stuff, um, which is, is true. I mean, if, if everything he said is, is more or less correct, um, but it's actually the wrong way of thinking about things to, to my mind um, because I, I, I don't think of intellectual property rights as IPR. I think of intellectual property. Um, and intellectual property is a property like anything else. So I may own my house, I may own my coffee cup, I may own my phone, I may own an idea. Um, and the, the economic value of property is well known and established. So you can earn income from it, you can trade it, uh, you can dispose of it, you can exclude others from using it. Um, and that's exactly the same as an idea. I can tell you an idea or I cannot tell you the idea. Where it becomes interesting is that intellectual property very often is not excludable. Um, so you actually have this thing that once I've told you an idea, I can't stop you from telling that idea to somebody else or even claiming it as being your idea. Um, and so you may spread the idea um, without me even knowing. Um, whereas if you came and took my house, I would kind of know that you've taken my house. So we, we have this excludability uh, concept around it. Um, and that is where cooperation comes in. Um, and obviously, in, in, uh, when, when it comes to protecting rights, the, the third party that we cooperate with very often is the state um, or the government. And so a lot of people get this idea that property rights or, or intellectual property rights especially, are some sort of gift from the government um, or that it creates some sort of monopoly right or that it's somehow illegitimate. And I think if you think of intellectual property in the way Jason has described, you very quickly fall into that mode of thinking that this is a gift from the government. Whereas if you think of it from my perspective, you, you, you seldom fall into the trap of thinking it's a gift from the government and you always kind of think this is something that attaches to me, it is mine, I don't need the government's permission to have an idea. Whereas if you think of it from a property rights perspective and lawyers, it's, well, you've only got that because the government has gifted it to you. And that actually causes great divergences amongst economists and, and, and some lawyers as to the value of intellectual property. Um, and then we get these big debates, is there too much of it? Is there too little of it? Um, how should we enforce it when people steal your ideas? Should we boil them in oil? You know, all this sort of stuff. Um, whereas in actual fact, we, sh we should think of intellectual property as being a, just another form of property which attaches to the human imagination. It doesn't attach to government. All right, so I think I need to defend my, my my presentation there a little bit, just just, um, just 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 for the benefit of listeners, so that they understand what the truth actually is here. Um, so the the perspective, the I mean, thanks are absolutely right about the. I'm representing the idea of intellectual property rights, where it's the rights is the is the core argument there, but the the idea of say why patents exist, why would we have this 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 um, you know additional legal construct and institutional construct that requires a lot of effort to, to enforce? What's the benefit of it? And the basic argument around um, patents as intellectual property rights is that they solve an incentive problem of investment in an idea. And the basic argument here is um, if I have an idea, I come up with a new design for a new mousetrap and it's amazing, it catches mice and the, the, it's... Um, it's 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 a it's I want to invest in the development of this idea, and I 
um, what's the main barrier I face is that if I tell you about the idea, you can say, wow, that's an amazing mousetrap idea. I can, I, I can do that. Um, it's as Sinclair described non-rivalrous and non-excludable in its natural form as an idea that, I, that exists in my head and I, I describe it, I, I write it down, I share it. Um, to create a high-powered incentive for me to simultaneously tell you all about the idea, to, to have the idea diffused in the world, but to protect my investment in it, um, I need an artificial monopoly. And that artificial monopoly enables it will be for a period of time, which which is a which is the property right aspect of it that enables me to invest in it for say twenty five years. Um, I can use monopoly pricing, um, I, in, in order to sort of recapture the investment that I'll make in developing that idea. And the enforcement of that artificial monopoly is then done by government, who will who will run around with sticks and beat anyone who tries to um, who tries to claim that idea as their own. And that. That sort of representation of a of a trade-off. We monopolies are bad except when we're using them for the purposes of good. It's kind of at the core of this of this sort of you know the the the, the um, controversial nature of, of of IP from an economic perspective. Um, it's an artificial monopoly in the sense that state enforced punishments of of of, of a property right. Um, that property right is, exists in a registry. Um, my name will be written down next to a picture of a mousetrap. Um, and anyone who is not me or um, um, will be punished if they try and use that idea written down next to it. I have exclusive monopoly, temporary monopoly rights for a period of time to, to exploit that monopoly in order to gain back my invest, my initial investment. And that's the, that, I mean, so that's the argument around why um, we can think of intellectual property rights as an artificial institution that exploits monopoly power for the purposes of creating a high-powered incentive to do social good, which is invest in ideas, um, that's the that's the most sort of coherent I can re represent. I think the the case for intellectual property as an instance of monopoly. Now, the economists who think, okay, the, the reason we don't like intellectual property is that we don't like monopoly. Do we really need a monopoly there to, to do all of those things that you describe? Are there other mechanisms for it? And you know that's a that's an empirical debate. Um, reasonable people disagree about that. There's different evidence in different sectors. It seems to be true in biology. It seems to be not true in creative industries, for instance, um, in different periods and different times. Um, venture capitalists love this because it creates security for investment. Um, end users hate this because it's a monopoly that's, that's stopping them from doing things. So again, it's a it has distributional consequences. But the point I'll I'll just end with there is to note that. The actual mechanics of how intellectual property works is it's a registry. Um, it's a, a list, a registry that's updated and maintained by a, an agency that has that has carriage of that. Um, and this is what the interesting sort of pathway in terms of, you know, how would we reinvent intellectual property? Well, we'll need a better registry or ledger technology. <laughs> I would say intellectual property rights are a register. Um, in, in a legal sense, the government writes them down or you write them down and you pay a fee, all this sort of stuff. But in the same way that I have monopoly access to my house, nobody kind of thinks that this is a monopoly. Um, so you can have monopoly access to your own ideas. 
Um, so I always like to keep very clear in my own mind what is intellectual property from an economics perspective and then intellectual property rights uh, from a legal perspective. Now, obviously, these things are very highly correlated with each other, but um, I, I think a lot of the heat of the debate comes from actually conflating the two and actually kind of thinking that we can only have intellectual property rights as a gift from government, whereas in actual fact, it's a gift of the human imagination and entrepreneurship. Yeah, so really the nuance in what you're saying is where, uh, when it comes to intellectual property rights, where that enforcement kind of comes from. And if that institutional arrangement is a kind of state legal mechanism or if it's um, something else, which Jason alluded to in this idea of reimagining. Um, and I guess I'll, I'll um, caveat that there's things and we, we will and will not say part of this conversation was sparked uh, by a really interesting um engagement with uh, people working in the blockchain space that is not yet announced. So we won't uh, try and go too far down that path until later. Uh, Jason. Yes. So, so I mean, an interesting point that you just raised there, Kelsey, was um, evidence of the property rights rights enforcement um, sort of constraint on, on, on this institution, um, you know, for good or for bad, is that intellectual property exists in nation states. Um, it's it's defined within a nation state. Um, and this is, I mean, this, like Sinclair's point is, is precisely that his view of it naturally doesn't. It exists wherever the market goes. Um, whereas the, the view I represented is very much a nation state definition of that because those registries exist at the nation state level. The enforcement only extends to the nation state's borders or, or, or to the citizens wherever they may be tracked around the world. And different countries have different approaches to this, whether they're uh, of that, but this is also part of the um, intellectual property worked pretty well-ish in a 20th century nation-state world where most economies existed more or less within nation-states and used government money and you know local courts and and, and so on and so on. Um, IP particularly breaks down, and we see this spectacularly so with copyright, but um, also with patents in a global context where. It's very, very easy to steal IP from someone else's country, just simply because the it's enforced by it's enforced by the host country that where the IP was registered and, and owned. But if you're outside of that country, unless unless they're willing to, to chase after you with gunships and, and <laughs> from space, it's it's free to steal. Um, well, it actually gets worse than that because one of the biggest thieves of intellectual property around the world is the nation state. Uh, um, they, they, they steal from each other. Um, now, I know this is a very unpopular view, but if, if you have a look at medical uh, technology and medical research and what have you, very often governments force foreign companies to sell them uh, um, their IP or sell them their, their products at below market prices. Now, everyone says, oh, no, there's a good reason for this and how wonderful it is. And, you know, Australians have got access to the world's best medicines and all this sort of stuff. But in actual fact, it's a, it's a wealth transfer from poor Americans who have to pay full price to rich Australians who, who pay subsidized prices. I mean, it is a form of theft. Um, so the nation state itself is a IP thief. Um, and, of course, very popular stealing from foreigners. And you can always tell a good story as to why this is good for us and our government is looking after us and all this sort of stuff. But Actually, it's just theft. So I, I just want to take this segue around jurisdiction to the context of cyberspace. So how does intellectual property then translate beyond kind of jurisdictional boundaries in the context of cyberspace? Although we obviously do have uh, nation state laws that attempt to extend into digital spheres. 
but can we talk about how this um, how this debate uh, then impacts the idea of property in cyberspace? Yes. So this is where we have to say um, we are not lawyers; we're economists, and 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 this is not legal advice. But the the, the basic answer is badly, poorly. Um, because the you know this is something where Sinclair and I are in furious agreement along with our colleague um, BJ Mohan. We've written a paper sort of exploring the implications of this. So um, it's it's not just that the theft takes place. It's on the on the producer side. If you're producing IP and you've come up with a great new idea, say a, a, you've discovered a new molecule or, or a new design for a thing, um, you register it say in America um, because IP rights are strongly enforced globally there. Then you have to do it everywhere else. Um, so if you actually really want to protect this, you have to go country by country, um, filing things, um, meeting with patent examiners, um, paying the fees, and, and so on. Um, which means that this is this is not for this is this is profoundly um, there's a, there's a profound sort of inequality here about access to this institution. Um, you need to be big and rich and ideally corporate um, to to do this. In an individual country to do it globally just unless you are a very very large multinational forget it right so what we end up with then is that ip tends to concentrate you you end up with ip pools being concentrated in very very large co global corporations um large global corporations that become these sort of vast patent warehouses then use them to threaten others um in, in a way so you, you end up with them being used as defensive portfolios you can't attack me because look at my enormous portfolio of global patents or they become weapons um you can walk into any room and just threaten anyone with your enormous portfolio of patents and again that's not what they were intended for this is a this sort of strategic um sort of use of patents as economic weapons or defense things um, that's the modern that's the basic modern use of them now um, and that is we are a million miles away from where we initially started with you know, imagine a imagine a property as property rights system that enables small innovators to come up with new ideas and share them with the world and be incentivized to or and think there's more expansive view of this just that just recognizes that the process of Creating economic value involves ideas, um, and and that's that naturally creates property. So we've ended up with a highly dysfunctional set of institutions at the nation state level, but it is so much worse at the global level. It is it is just wildly broken, which is why, um, in a world where we can start to reimagine um, property rights um, from the perspective of just you know the underlying components, um, an idea that can be written down. And kept track of, time-stamped, um, who did what when, in a way that is that is provable to counterparties, um, or is a, you know is an establishment of a, an administrative record that something valuable was created by someone somewhere. Um, that, you know, what is that? That's an NFT. Um, where do NFTs exist on the internet? Where does the internet exist globally? Everywhere. We've, we've, we've suddenly, um, you know, so we've got a let's say 800 year old institution that was originally created by, you know, um, power, but, you know, but by administrative power in, in, in trading colonies to, to, to reward merchants for coming up with ideas has now been corrupted into a global weapons platform. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, we've, we've got an opportunity to reinvent this. And I think, you know, what we are, we as economists are incredibly excited about this legal innovation. Or, or, well, it's, yeah. it's, it's the, 
the legal system itself is being disrupted here. It's not the notion of intellectual property because we still have smart people coming up with smart ideas. Uh, we now actually have a, a market mechanism or a, a contracting mechanism whereby individuals can recognize each other's property rights without necessarily having the state being involved. And so we, we're actually um, disintermediating the legal system in this particular instance. Because you've got this, we, we, we've now got this technology which is able to keep track of and timestamp stuff. Um, and, and of course, as, as I, I try to explain to everybody that if you're going to have a, a blockchain or a distributed ledger technology, you have to be so, uh, that's viable at doing something. You have to be solving a trust problem. You have to be solving an information problem. And, and the, the way to think about it is all information is local. And you actually got to communicate, you've got to broadcast that information in a credible manner across a large market. Well, um, the internet allows us to broadcast information around the world more or less instantaneously. And of course, the distributed ledger now allows us to keep track of that distribution of information around the world, you know, as, as we're doing it simultaneously. So in the past, we, we could move goods and services long distances, and our ideas were embedded in the good or service. But as the good or service moved from our hometown to a bigger market across an international border, what have you, there's a lot of information loss that's occurring. We can now match information with goods and services, so we can we can um, embody that information itself into the uh, into the good or service. But we can also trade in ideas much better now than what we could in the past. Um, and so we're actually going to see a, a flourishing of, of of ideas, of business models, of the human imagination in a way that does not involve the nation state, which this may be controversial for some people, but has become an inherently distrusted organization or institutional form um, over the last 30, 40 years. Um, and, 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 and so... We, we don't trust the nation state to look after our own, goods and, uh, our own goods and services ideas. We don't trust foreign nation states to look after our ideas. And now with this new technology, we don't have to trust them anymore. So now we're talking about how intellectual property translates to kind of crypto or, or Web3 ecosystems. And what you've just alluded to, Sinclair, is, is this idea around kind of self-governance that perpetuates these systems from kind of Bitcoin to other public blockchains to decentralized autonomous organizations and so on. And so what you're saying, if I understand correctly, is that property rights can be granted by kind of collectives of, um, of people in these ecosystems rather than by the nation state. Yes. So, so in, in, in order to have viable property rights of, of any kind of sort, um, there's a, a, an economic model um, associated with Harold Demzitz where more or less he said uh, the right had to be valuable and the rights became valuable either through a change in relative prices or a change in technology and people want to have the right. Um, and for most of human history, that has more or less been how we think of property rights. So um, uh, listeners probably saw that movie with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, The Reverend. Um, if you don't remember the movie, Leonardo DiCaprio gets eaten by a bear. It's, it's very exciting. I enjoyed that part. Um, but in actual fact, the, <laughs> the story takes place in Canada. Um, I think probably the early 19th century or anyway, um, 19th century type movie. And in the beginning of the movie, you have these European uh, um, animal trappers and they are uh, they're, they're collecting furs and they get uh, uh, attacked by a native Indian uh, group 
who um, start shooting arrows at them and what have you. And a lot of people would have looked at that and just thought, oh, look, you know, a, a frontier conflict and what have you. This is actually a conflict about property rights. Because what would happening is that the animals, even though they were wild, were in the Canadian Indians' hunting grounds. And the rule was, if you were in somebody else's hunting ground and you were hungry, you could kill an animal, eat the meat, but you had to leave the fur and the, the leather staked out because that, that was actually a valuable uh, um, property that belonged to the people who lived there. And what these Europeans were doing is that they were going to, to Canada, they were capturing, um, well, in that particular story, they were shooting deer. But in actual fact, the, the real thing was beavers. Beaver fur hats were astonishingly valuable in, in, in Europe. And so Harold Dems has actually told the story of how property rights emerged, how le- levels of ownership changed, um, as a result of European colonization and all sorts of stuff. And it's, it's a fascinating story. Um, and it's all set out in the movie The Reverend, although that's all in the background. Um, but in actual fact, there, there's another way of thinking about it. One, um, the right must be valuable. Okay, so beaver fur hats are valuable. Um, I must want the right, but you must want to recognize the right as well. So in order for us to have gains from trade, it actually pays us as, as human beings to actually recognize that other people have rights so that we can trade with each other as opposed to fight with each other. Um, so the, the gains from trade are absolutely enormous. And property rights is a mechanism which facilitates that gain from trade. Um, now, as, as, it, as it happens, generally speaking, so I, I, I may have a cup and you know it's my cup and you want to recognize that it's my cup and all this sort of stuff. But very often we don't know each other at a, at a face-to-face level. So we actually have to have a third party come along and say that is Sinclair's cup. And historically that has been the government or the community which has evolved. So civil society would recognize it, which has evolved into government, a government as we know it. But we have civil society organizations that don't require government. And one of the things that happens in the, in the blockchain space, in the cyberspace, um, in the crypto space, is we've got DAOs, where DAOs are communities of individuals who come together for a specific purpose, and we are going to recognize each other's rights because effectively we want to cooperate with each other, we want to trade with each other. Again, we have disintermediated the state, and because DAOs aren't legally recognized, and we're not lawyers and all this sort of stuff, and I know about Wyoming and all that, but because they're not legally recognized, we have actually disintermediated again, the state. We don't need lawyers to cooperate with each other if we all agree to work together, if we all recognize everybody's rights. So again, we're actually moving into a world where um, our, our, our human imagination is actually setting the agenda here and not lawyers and not the legal system. So I'd add to that that I think it's also, I mean, this is a sort of layer one blockchain sort of level way to think about it that what's these what the base layer blockchain infrastructure is doing is basically defining a community um which have all who have all voluntarily agreed to abide by these particular standards which are you know hard coded in the protocol um and anything created on that is then enforced by those standards i mean that's that is a um, that is a community that's coming together under a constitutional arrangement um, encoded in software to create um, objects, digital objects, um, that the protocol then establishes and creates and enforces property rights over. Um, but what's you know what's incredible about it is, um, a that's a voluntary community that came together to do that. There's no one in there that didn't want that didn't choose to be in there. Um, unlike nation states, um, it's a 
dynamic community that could exist anywhere you know on earth and 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 other planets um it's one that that um you can update the the rules and codes you know you can have collective governance to sort of change those those sort of rights so you know there is a there's an almost literal sense in which the same story of you know the emergence of of, of intellectual property rights in meat space in historical space is actually being replicated in in, in, in crypto space um, in, in very much the same way. And I think Sink's point is for the same reasons um, that, you know, that valuable resources are being created and at different prices, we care to enforce these things at different levels. Um, mutual recognition by a different members of a community through a common step, through a common you know, interface, where in this case, the interface is the protocol as opposed to the government. Um, protocols are much better, faster, cheaper ways of, 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 of doing things than government. They're also usually less corrupt um, in, in, in the operations on that. But the other thing is, is that all of this can take place um, in the shadow of the law. We could still have a kind of you know, court system sitting in the backdrop that if we really can't figure out and resolve this um, in crypto, we can go, all right, let's, let's take it back to Meetspace and everyone pay your money and get your lawyers and let's do that and <laughs> let's spend the next six years. Which they very years. much do. Like, yeah. I, I mean, uh, like DAOs, for example, don't exist beyond their own kind of laws, yeah. norms and enforcement mechanisms. But this, this is one of these um, things that economists have, have often argued that in the shadow of the law is actually a nice place to be because what it means is that you're taking advantage of mutual just low cost agreements being made, knowing that if if you if you, if you break the agreements, if, if you defect, if you if you defect on this agreement, then we go to the expensive thing. And the expensive thing's gonna be horrible for everyone. It's slow and annoying, whatever. And having the the sort of the court system sitting in the background actually being quite horrible and dysfunctional is, is almost a feature here because it means that you know we're not gonna use it unless we really have to. Um, which means we're going to try all the other ways of agreeing. What is what do NFTs do? They're just a really nice, clean, um, easily provable, searchable. And um, think made this point. You know, the amazing thing about the crypto space is it's the internet. We can use search engines. Um, they work really, really fast and cheaply over anything that's that's good metadata, um, or even even moderately good metadata. Um, you know, and if you talk to any intellectual property lawyer and go, what do you spend most of your time doing? And the answer will be, I spend most of my time trying to figure out who owns the thing or who has a claim on the thing. Because I have just no idea who's out there. And just it's just it's search costs, um, search costs, which go from you know, $300 an hour um, that have to be done over 27 countries to, you know, a tenth of a mm. you know, microsecond mm. and a little bit of compute time mm. to deliver 400 results. I also want to uh, very quickly sing the praises of, of the courts a bit. Um, common law courts tend to enforce efficiency norms. So what happens is that people trade with each other and eventually a dispute arises and they go to court. And very often what the court will do is actually look at what the people were doing, what they were thinking of, what their agreement was, and very often will enforce that private agreement. And we, we know this in history. So, so what used to happen... Um, uh, in the 19th century, again, uh, people used to use whale oil for uh, for, for for light, and uh, so there was a big whaling industry. And what would happen is you'd go out with a whale, and if, if you've read your Moby Dick, you'd know people would go out on little boats and they would harpoon the whale, and the whale would swim away, and then you had to chase after the whale. 
But sometimes the whale got away and then died and was floating on the surface when another whaling ship came along. And then there would be a dispute over who owned the whale. And the rule became that if the harpoon was still in the whale, um, then whoever owned the harpoon owned the whale. And what happened was that the, uh, um, the, the courts started enforcing that rule. Um, getting away from animal hunting um, in the California gold rush. Um, what, what would happen is there was no law in, in California. It, it was more or less a lawless uh, uh, um, area. Um, and when the gold was discovered and everybody rushed to California and staked their claims. And after the fact, people started having disputes over you know, uh, claims and what have you. And the courts actually recognized the norms of the society. They came along and said, well, this is what people thought they were doing when they staked, and we will simply ex post recognize that. So I, I imagine if disputes come out of crypto space into the legal system, very often the legal system will simply enforce those existing norms from crypto space. So, um, as, well, as, as Jason said, of course, the, the, the legal system can be uh, um, uncertain, what have you. So you always have this incentive to agree and to, to resolve disputes locally, but you can go to the legal system. And if the common law system works as well as it should be working, it will more or less come in and, over, and, and more or less overwrite those norms and, and enforce what they are. So one, another interesting aspect of that line of thought is that um, in a sort of blockchain legal system or blockchain intellectual property system where we've got sort of blockchain based IP, um, IP that's you know, created through NFTs and so on. Um, the question is, which legal system do you use? Um, now, we've described it in terms of, you know, a bad legal system or an expensive one is a nice sort of threat to, to keep it out of the courts. But the other thing is, well, let's just hunt around the world and find a really good one. And we'll just mutually agree to use that one. And that might be Australia, it might be Singapore, it might be Switzerland, it might be Russia. Um, who knows, right? <laughs> unlikely um, Russia. Unlikely. <laughs> um, but, you know, but but the point is, is that that sort of jurisdictional shopping. You, you'd you'd um, now what would who 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 or what would probably do that would be, um, you know, once again, this 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 feels like the role of 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 um, tax havens and and those types of small. Hmm you know, countries that exist off the grid a little bit that just provide high quality institutional services, whether it's high quality banking or high quality legal settlements or, or whatever. Um, that, like that, that may well be the future, that, that we have sort of Cayman Island courts that will backstop global crypto IP. Um, that, that feels to me like a more likely future than the, the one where every single country um, has its own unique sort of dual system of, of of regular IP systems plus crypto IP systems mm. built on top. Mm. Yeah, so we've talked about kind of how this is different or potentially useful in crypto space. I just wanted to re-emphasize your point, Jason, about the kind of composability that you see happening here because you mentioned layer one blockchains and that value of a shared ledger providing the kind of community consensus layer and then the ability to compose um ownership or, or access rights and, and verifiable ownership on top of that, for example, with NFTs. Uh, so I'm also wondering who are the kind of winners and losers of this transition? Or do, or do you see these kind of futures coexisting with the shadow law and then the kind of crypto consensus? Yeah, so the composability one is interesting because 
I don't know how many people out there have, have filed for patents, but if you when you file for a patent, um, it's got your name, it's got when you did it, it's got the description of what it is, um, it's you know et cetera et cetera. But the point is, it's designed around a model where it was a single person had a single idea at a single point in time and wrote it down in a coherent way that took less than twenty pages. Um, and then you you verify that you have patent examiners who go, yes, that's a that is a novel idea, stamp, um, and then send it off. Um, and what a patent is, is that bundle, that whole bundle. Um, but you can unbundle that into, in so many interesting ways. You can unbundle it. What if there's lots of different people that contribute ideas at different points in time? What if it was a gradual sort of series of things that's, that, that needed to be stamped? So it was a team effort that, that came from different countries, you know, and different sort of things. Um, so the idea of, of being able to unbundle the components of, of a claim to a value of an idea in all of its components is something that is just just naturally drops out of a of, of sort of blockchain infrastructure, but is extremely difficult to to reverse engineer into the existing sort of um, patent system we've got. So I think that 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 notion of composability understood as as or as sort of unbundling. Um, but once you can do that, you can then create different incentives. I can sort of, I can, I can, I can create, um, I, I can sort of start to add DeFi aspects into this and, and, and sort of stake parts of it, but not other parts. Um, I can kick it far into the future and have it sort of, um, and sort of time lock parts of it or other sorts of things. Oh, like interesting. That. Yeah. So we've yeah. talked about these, this, these ideas in relation yeah. to data in terms of like the DeFiing and the time locking and, and all these yeah. kinds of so it, just, so it just becomes a much broader design space where you can unbundle it into its components. Um, a lot of the sort of fixed parameters in it, that, you know, it's 25 years and it has to be a single person in a single country and a coherent idea, all of which can become variables that, that can be opened up in, 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 the, in the broader design space, which means that um, rather than just having a single template where all I mean, and, and I'm sure Sink would agree with this, this, this critique of the way IPR, especially patents currently works, is that it's a single box that everything has to fit in. And, you know, ideas in you know, new types of chemicals for, for in biology and, and pharmacology are in the same space as new type, new designs for blades and, and, and aircraft engines are the same type of software patents and all sorts of other ridiculous things that fit in there. And so much of the ways in which the... Um, the system, the IP system becomes sort of corrupted in the sense of not not working in the way it was intended to do. Um, I just simply because so because ideas and, and the, the value they create is so variable and open and, and continually changing. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. so at, at the moment, you, you have to squeeze the, the full gamut of human diversity into a particular framework, uh, which you don't have to do that going forward. So the, 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 the blockchain actually, or the, the distributed ledger technology actually frees us up to more or less uh, dream big and we can fit our big ideas into almost any framework that we can devise, whereas we don't have to fit it into a, a government-mandated framework. I mean, one of the things that I really enjoy is that a bureaucrat gets to decide whether or not your idea is novel enough, um, you know, which is the strangest thing ever because, I mean, sure, they see a lot of stuff and they're probably very good and what have you, but they're not actually making an investment decision. Um, they're not actually taking an idea to market. Um, so you know, they have some reputation, but they have no real skin in the game. They're, they're, they're not making a market decision. They're making a bureaucratic decision. And, and so I always kind of think that it's, it's kind of a huge irony 
which we can get away from that. Uh, you, you can lock your stuff up in a vault. You can time stamp it. Whatever you want to do with it, you can put it out there and have a credible claim that this is yours. So speaking of credible claims, I do have to give a shout out to Kongland, who is a crypto state who's sort of toying with some of these ideas, which got us um, thinking and in conversation with them and, um, and, and riffing on some of this stuff. So I just wanted to give each of you the opportunity, I guess, to give a kind of final statement. So what is the real significance of this at the extreme of uh, crypto states, I guess, having their own uh, kind of, um, you know, governance and, and community consensus over um, intellectual property and, and, and other sorts of properties? Um, so I, I would say, more or less, most of our human institutions are designed to constrain opportunism and to um, credibly communicate local information or local knowledge across uh, a time and space. Um, the blockchain, because the way it industrializes trust, actually places huge constraints on the amount of opportunism we can get away with and at the same time does allow us to credibly communicate local information across time and space, seems to me that it is unshackling the human imagination, human capital, and more or less going to allow us to live full lives as human beings, um, unconstrained by a lot of the institutions which kind of currently exist. Um, to my mind, this is a good thing. So um, I'm very optimistic about the future. I, I kind of think that we're going to see an explosion of, of, of new ideas and new products of the human imagination. Um, and intellectual property is going to play a huge role in that. Um, but it's not going to be intellectual property rights as we currently know and understand it. Yeah, I, I, do, I do agree with you on that. Um, I'll say completely the thing. Um, uh, the, the, the sort of optimism behind this, the idea that, that this is a very, very good thing, I completely share. Um, I'll just emphasize that what I think is going on here is we're fundamentally dealing with institutional innovation. We've got, a, we've got an institutional disruption that has come not from legislation and, and the designs of government, but has you know, largely just emerged from tech, from software, um, and it wasn't didn't intend to do this. It was it was built for a completely different purpose. It was to you know make payments on the internet and, and to create sort of digital assets. But um, you know what we've got here is a global institutional platform that is being built um, and, and, and is evolving um, to to meet the sort of needs that is um, in, in the space. But the, the crucial the crucial factor here is that in a digital economy, most wealth is non is is, is intangible. Um, it's not made of of livestock and minerals in the ground and, and, and physical things. It's, it's, there's still some of that, and of course there will be. But just with each passing day, more and more wealth and value that's created is intangible. It's data. It's ideas. It's concepts. It's thoughts. It's um, it's you know, entrepreneurially discovered ways of doing things. And this was Sync's point. It's just in the in the act, in the in the everyday sort of actions of 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 you know of living in an economy, um, we throw off not just value, we throw off sort of claims to, to having um, having done things. Um, a crypto you know a blockchain based sort of intellectual property system is almost perfectly designed to capture that. 
Um, it does it at a global scale. It does it digitally native. Um, it does it into sort of protocol integration that enables search, that enables um, record keeping, that enables all of these sort of really nice features that make it fast and cheap and global and efficient, um, which means that everyone can participate. It's, 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 it's by, you're by definition part of this unless you opt out, um, or in the sense that it's not sort of a, it doesn't start from America and then work its way out or from rich countries and gradually we'll figure out how to get um, the rest of the world joined up to it. It's just, if you've got a computer, um, you're part of this. And, and like, that's, a, that's an incredible thing. It's born global. And that's what I love about it. It's, it's a born global institution for managing and coordinating um, the you know, mutual property claims that are in ideas and data and other intangible resources at global scale for everyone going forward that you know is um, a lot less censorable than anything we've ever had before. So just every single thing we say about this is amazing as a money also applies as this is amazing as an IP system. Um, and you know, it's, it's kind of an obvious point. Like once you know, in the crypto space, if they sort of think about it, it's of course that's what it is. But it hasn't really been framed as a, um, you know, this is, a, this is sort of Web3 is, is, is not just disrupting a little bit the IP system, it's fundamentally blowing it apart um, and, and rebuilding it. And I think where we've come to in this conversation is that it doesn't actually have to destroy the existing one. It just builds it on top of it and gradually it'll use it as it needs to and um, you know, I think the, the fact that we've got competition, that it can pick and choose which ones it wants to connect with, um, you know, presumably the good, efficient ones um, with, with high quality institutional governance um, is, a, is a feature here as well. So, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm mega bullish on this, not just from that this is a human flourishing story. This is a global institution suddenly got better because of tech story. Mm, I think that point about, uh, I mean, I love that you just pointed out, you know, this is a technology, but it has all of these kind of um, governance and um, sort of enforceability and sort of coordination consequences across all these other areas. And I know from my work on the histories, kind of looking at some of the political dynamics of how this technology emerged, it does tell that story of kind of interdependence with existing systems and then we're still seeing that um as sync mentioned before with DAOs, like are they registered are they not we don't know they kind of half need to be to to get on with um with sustaining themselves and um, so some really interesting dynamics at play here and thank you to each of you for such a fascinating conversation so that was Sinclair Davidson and Jason Potts from the RMIT Blockchain Innovation Hub. And thank you for joining us for this episode of Mint and Burn. You can check out the show notes and get in touch with ideas or feedback at rmitblockchain.io.